I am Madison Timmons. I'm Chris Susie. And we're paranormal specialists who live in the most haunted city on earth, Savannah, Georgia. Every day is Halloween in our line of work, so join us as we spin true tales of haunts, murders, and disturbing Savannah history. I'm Madison. I'm Chris. And, and welcome, welcome to, to the most haunted city on earth. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the most haunted city on earth. My name is Madison Timmons. I'm Chris Susie, and I'm JT Timmons, talking from the ether. Mm. Um, yeah, JT eventually will have his own camera, but not for today. Um, we are though in a new space. You might notice. It's true. Yes. yes. We're in the same building, just in a different room. We've decided to transport this room into the haunted universe. So Indeed, indeed. So, super creepy. We're going to fill it up with lots of haunted objects, is what I've been told. And yeah, I'm the pair junkies are sending uh, some in. And we're gonna we're gonna be putting you know the pair junkies are basically gonna decorate the the spot, but yeah this is uh, this is our new podcast studio and we're super stoked. Yeah. Um, this is gonna be excellent. Yes, and for those of you who will be watching one of our later episodes in the Halloween series, you might notice <laughs> that was not filmed in this room. Uh, we do film some of the episodes out of order, so. Um, if you get confused as to what is happening. And we are confused as well. Yes. Um, and at the moment, um, when this is going live, JT and I will actively be in Hawaii. Hawaii. Going to these haunted locations. So mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. so this is going to be another installment of our Hulaween series. Hulaween. Hulaween. So. Goodness gracious. <laughs> Um, but yes, so today is going to be for um, our true crime lovers who listen to this podcast. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah, we've got some requests to also include a little bit of true crime because it does kind of go hand in hand with the hauntings. They overlap a lot, yeah. They do. Um, so I will say this one is technically we're going to encapsulate it as Hawaiian serial killers. But I will tell you, we have one mass shooter included in this um, particular list, and they all suck, so they can all be clumped together. Sure. But you see, uh, I do, we are aware that there is a differentiating um, t entitlement, if you will. Uh, so when it comes to mass shooters, they are not technically classified as serial killers because technically a serial killer has to kill at least three people on different um, occasions. So we're aware that there's a difference, but they all suck and they're all creepy. And the mass shooter's location has an interesting tidbit, including some people's previously favorite show, Lost. Yeah, so, so yeah, so this is gonna be the Hawaiian serial killer. All right, so, well, I'm excited to hear about it. Yeah, you know, JT, I, love, I love true crime. Yeah, JT's favorite um, subgenre of true crime is definitely serial killers. Oh, all day, so, all day. Yeah. You know, I mean, I'm not upsetting. original in that. It's very upsetting, but fascinating. Yes. The the logic behind these people is mm -hmm. absolutely bizarre. Um, if, if there's a demon possession that, like, where the person commits the crime, that will trump serial killer. That's the only time that happens. So there's plenty of oh, theories yeah. of people thinking that there 
is some type of demonic possession when it comes to serial killers and uh, especially when it comes to people who kill like their entire families or things like that and seemingly out of nowhere do it. Well, I think that that's the, um, it took us a while to completely understand schizophrenia. Mm-hmm. And I believe that schizophrenia and, and demonic uh, right. uh, situations kind of crossed waves at some point. Because in schizophrenia, you're hearing voices tell you to do things. You're, you're having very vivid uh, hallucinations and things of that nature. So, you know, like the son of Sam oh, uh, yeah. claimed that, you know, a dog told him to, to go out and kill people. And he believed that he was doing it for the devil. Um, but it's pretty safe to assume that we're dealing with schizophrenia uh, more than demonic possession. Absolutely. But nonetheless, we'll get into it. So. All right, let's jump right into it, Yule. All righty. Also, real fast, if you are considering becoming a pair junkie, you will get zero ads, live streams all the time, mm-hmm. and um, exclusive content. So and you just get to watch up. us film these episodes live. Yeah, it's true. So. Yep. Yep. We, we, we have got... a lot of asides that don't make it to the final cut. It's true. <laughs> um, Mostly it's us meowing. Yep. And so, oh just to bother JT. Yep. Um, but yes. Also, if you want to actually see a lot of these locations that we'll be talking about in the Halloween series, become a pair junkie because they are getting to see a lot of it um, as live streams because JT and I will be going to visit them. Um, yep, yep, yep. So, anywho, we're going to start it off with the Xerox murders. All right. Yeah, y'all, y'all remember Xerox? Well, um, apparently, <laughs> apparently, um, they had a massive headquarters in Hawaii. I had no idea. That uh, makes sense. Uh, you know, I mean, if you're going to make stuff like that, you're going to want to do it in paradise, I guess. Absolutely. So it, the logic is there, at least. But this particular incident um, happened in 1999. It was referred to as the Honol- 1999 Honolulu shootings or the Xerox murders. It was an incident of mass murder that occurred on November 2nd, 1999 in a Xerox Corporation building in Honolulu, Hawaii, United States. So the perpetrator was a service technician. His name was Brian Koji Iwasugi. Hopefully I pronounced his uh, last name correctly, but I'm assuming that. So he shot eight people. Wounding seven fatally, six co-workers and his supervisor. And this is considered one of the worst mass shootings in the history of Hawaii. So, pretty big news. Um, so, a little bit about um, Brian Iwasugi, just to give you background on a little insight of where he's coming from, at least. Um, so, he was born in Honolulu in 1959. Brian Koji Iwasugi grew up in the Nuanu neighborhood he attended Roosevelt High School, and Yuasugi was a member of the school's Army JR, uh, JROTC um, chapter and the school's rifle team. So they prepped him real, real well, I guess. That'll do it. Yeah, they will do it. So classmates remembered him as a quiet student who never got into trouble. According to his brother, Dennis, or... Yeah, Dennis. Yuasugi crashed their father's car and hit his head on the windshield shortly after graduating high school in 1977. He was never the same afterwards. Which is also something that doesn't come up enough when you're referring to, you know, these particular type of mass killers. Um, A lot of times there are traumatic events that can cause brain damage, uh, mental illness, 
things of that nature. Not to justify anything that they're no. doing, but... Um, but, you know, post-concussive syndrome can cause all forms of maladies. Um, I actually suffer from post-concussion syndrome, and you can hear things, see things. You know, you can have very lucid uh, hallucinations. You can have all kinds of imbalances, uh, emotional and, you know, physical imbalances. So, yeah. So, you know, it's very likely that he was suffering from all of that and um, did not get the proper help that he needed before this incident happened. Although, when we get into the um, motive, it's not justified. No, um, so no, of course, never. <laughs> yeah. Never. Anyways, so um, Yuasugi had been employed by Xerox as a technician since 1984. Among his hobbies was raising and breeding goldfish and koi, which he would sell to local pet stores. He had an extensive collection of firearms, and at the time of the murders, he had as many as 25 guns registered in his name, dating to 1982. So police had um, also took 11 handguns, five rifles, and two shotguns from Yuasugi's father. So clearly there's a... um, a problem with the family here, you know, uh, and maybe they shouldn't have owned so many guns. That's a lot of guns. That's a lot, That's of, a guns. lot of guns. Um, yeah. 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 It's the eighties, you know, a lot well, of this. You know, we have a, a very strong fascination with firearms, you know, as a nation. Uh, and it, it, in the eighties, especially like late seventies, early eighties, we had, so many movies that really made guns very cool. That's true. You know, it, it, it just you're looking at, at these these superhero like people carrying these amazing firearms, and you're like, that's so cool. And the military too. You know, seeing military using these weapons, it 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 endears us to the weapon. You know, the weapon becomes like an iconic right thing, and to have is to have power, and to you know be like those people. You know, it's. It's very interesting and, and probably worth like long investigation into the psychology of the gun. It's true. Um, and especially when it is clear that there is a um, history of family members um, not being qualified <laughs> to own guns, <laughs> maybe we should have looked a little bit further into that. Um, anywho, so according to testimony from Yuasugi's father, Hiroyuki, um, Hiroyuki was normal until he started working for Xerox in 1984. In 1988, Brian started to complain that he had a poking sensation in his head, more than likely from the post-concussive um, situation he was dealing with. After being transferred to another work group, Yuasugi began making unfounded accusations of harassment and product tampering against fellow repairmen. They had difficulty dealing with him. Former co-workers who knew him reported that other members of his team allegedly ostracized him, making him feel isolated and withdrawn. Mm. Yuasugi reportedly made threats against other co-workers' lives. And in 19... 19- that should have been like, okay, you're gone. You're done. Yeah. But they kept him around. Um, so in 1993, he was uh, ordered to undergo psychiatric evaluation and anger management courses after he kicked in and damaged an elevator door. That- also a, a reason, for, although what a great company to not just flat out fire him. Sure. You know, to, to seek out uh, um, psychiatric help 
Although if it was a, a physical malady, psychiatric help may have, have had nothing. You know, right. There would have been no angle. Um, and I don't think that PCS was even talked about, not really, mm-hmm. uh, until, you know, the aughts or even you know, sure. a decade ago was like a, a bloom of, of, of conversation about it, at least. Exactly. I mean, um, you know, there's a lot of research that's starting to come out, at least for more, um, I shouldn't say rare, but more uncommon um, conditions like that. And mm-hmm. so good for them. Good for you, Xerox. But can we talk about the elevator door getting kicked in? That's a lot of strength. That's like, a lot of strength and a lot of rage. That's a lot of rage. And um, so that that is just absolutely wild. Although now wild. that I think about it, I've never, I've never tried to manhandle an elevator door. <laughs> and now I'm worried that maybe elevators are not as secure as I thought they right. were. Right. <laughs> you know, well, I have been um, eaten by an elevator door before. And I will say... It, they're very strong. They it really hurts. <laughs> so, um, if you've ever been eaten by an elevator, you would also, I'm sure, be aware. Um, it's not fun. So, and that, that's a lot of metal. To it's a lot of metal. Well, anywho, so Yuasugi was arrested for third degree criminal property damage after that incident. Sure. And coworkers told Dr. Michael Wellner, chairman of the forensic panel and the forensic psychi- uh, psychiatrist who interviewed Yuasugi prior to trial, that as early as 1995, Yuasugi was openly talking of carrying out a mass shooting at the workplace where he, uh, to be, were he to be fired. He complained that his coworkers were engaged in patterns of harassment, backstabbing behavior, and spreading of rumors. So he already talked about this, and right. they probably were like, ah, that, Brian. talk. Yeah, Brian, he's yeah. just crazy. All talk. Yeah, well, shouldn't have yeah. listened to him. Yeah. Um, so, in uh, in the period leading up to the shootings, Xerox management had become increasingly committed to phasing out the type of photocopier that Yuasugi serviced. He resisted learning the replacement machine, fearing that he could not keep up with its technical demands. After working around his refusal to train on the new machine, Yuasugi's manager insisted on November 1st, 1999, that he would begin training the next day. In his interview with Dr. Michael Wellner, who examined Yuasugi when the defendant brought on an insanity defense, Yuasugi said he had believed that if he refused to take the training, management would fire him. He told, well, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's... (laughs) If I refuse to do my job, they'll fire me. Well, so, obviously, yeah, that, that's, that's how jobs work. <laughs> that's how jobs work. So um, he told Dr. Wellner, I decided to give them a reason to fire me. Uh, that's, uh, but, but. <laughs> that's not the way to go about this, Brian. Um, so the incident. At 8 in the morning, Brian Koji Yuasugi, a service technician, um, opened fire inside the building with a semi-automatic pistol, killing his supervisor and six co-workers and fired in the direction of another co-worker who fled the building. The eighth person escaped without injury. After the shooting, Yuasugi fled in a company van, and by mid-morning, he was found sitting in the van near the Hawaii Nature Center in Maikiki, above downtown Honolulu. He held a standoff with police that la- lasted for five hours. 
during which he brandished a pistol, read magazines, and smoked cigarettes. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. So there was no remorse at no, all, no, no, which no. is disturbing mm. at the very least. Um, adding to the tension of the standoff, the Hawaii Nature Center was hosting 35 local school children <sighs> who were trapped inside without food or water. Yuasugi surrounded to police at approximately 3 p.m. Hawaiian Standard Time. So, he caused a lot of trauma and mayhem that day. That is the Lord. the basis of um, this situation. And his victims included Jason Balatico, 33, Ford Kanhira, 41, Ronald Kadahoka, 50, Ronald Kawame, 54, Melvin Lee, 58, Peter Mark, 46, and John Sakamoto, 36. When it came to his trial, 40-year-old Brian Yuasugi's month-long trial began on May 15, 2000. He was charged with one count of murder in the first degree, which was his first count, seven counts of murder in the second degree, and one count of attempted murder in the second degree. Prior to the close of the trial, counts two through eight were merged into count one. So he ended up receiving like eight or nine counts of really heavy charges. Um, The prosecuting attorney of Honolulu, uh, Peter Carlisle, the deputy prosecuting attorneys, Christopher Van Marder and Kevin Takata, represented the state of Hawaii. Criminal defense attorneys Gerald Finesca and Rodney Ching of the law firm Finesca and Ching represented Yuasugi. Yuasugi pleaded, uh, pleaded not guilty by reason of insanity, which they always do, and claimed that he felt like an outcast at work and that he feared his colleagues were conspiring to have him fired. I'm sure they were if you, you were acting right. like this. So Dr. Park Dietz and Dr. Daryl Matthews testified for the defense that he was insane, citing the delusions about how others were tampering with his fish, because remember he was right. a fish breeder, um, lead prosecution um, expert witness Dr. Harold Hall testified that the defendant fulfilled the criteria for a diagnosis of schizophrenia, but he did not meet the criteria uh, criteria for either insanity or extreme emotional or mental disturbance, EMED. Dr. Michael Wellner testified for the prosecution that although Yuasugi had, in his opinion, schizophrenia, he carried out the shooting because he was angry that he would be fired for insubordination and that his own account of concealment before the crime demonstrated that he knew what he had done was wrong. Good for Dr. Wellner. There you go. You know? 
Insanity isn't really an excuse. It's not an excuse, especially if you've made active claims that you're going to do it in the past. Um, So on August 8th, 2000, Judge Marie N. Milk sentenced Yuasugi to life without the possibility for parole for nine counts of... um, for one, for count one, and life with the po- uh, the possibility of parole for the other nine counts, mm. um, with the sentences to run consecutively, the court also ordered Yuasugi to pay five hundred dollars in restitution and seventy thousand dollars to the Crime Victim Compensation Fund. Uh, Hawaii does not have the death penalty. Now, when it comes to the um, what happened afterwards. The building stayed there even after Xerox moved out. So Xerox va- uh, vacated the premises at 1200 North Nimitz Highway after the shooting. This facility was vacant until 2004 when the producers of the TV show Lost built a soundstage there to film indoor scenes. And so Datile currently leases the property from the Weinberg Foundation for its tile and natural stone showroom, so that's what's currently there. Um, but the state legislature um, also made sure that uh, there was extra protection put around this in case there was any copycats. Oh, well, there you go. Uh, now, fun fact about the law show with this case in particular. Hmm. Um, according to the transcript from the official Lost podcast, because apparently that exists. Um, <laughs> Naturally. <laughs> I had no idea. I had no idea either <laughs> until researching this, but um, Lost showrunners Damon Lindelof, Lindelof and Carlton Cuse were aware of the building's history when they turned it into a set for the TV series five years later, and they were so far, uh, they went as so far as to conduct a ritual to bless the space before filming commenced. Oh, so smart. Um, I have not been able to find any other signs of indication of paranormal activity after the ritual happened. So apparently they must Although have done a good job. look at those indoor scenes. Look in the backgrounds of all right, the indoor scenes. Right, now we got to go watch Lost again. Um, so that's pretty fun. But I thought that was such a fascinating fact. Yeah, um, uh, an interesting turnaround very. right there. Yeah. Um, so on to our next um, serial killer. This is an actual serial killer referred to as the Honolulu Strangler. Oh, boy. Yeah. So, the Honolulu Strangler, um, also known as the Honolulu Rapist. So, we should probably put a trigger warning at the beginning of this episode saying Uh that there's going to be talk of mayhem, rape, all sorts of... Yeah, it's going to be basically in the title. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So, so that is the nickname given to... Is this in the 70s? Yeah. uh, 80s. So... They have still never found him. They have an idea of technically who they think it was, but you'll see where that goes. Anyway, so technically it is an unidentified serial killer who is credited with killing five women in Hawaii from 1985 and 1986. He is the second known serial killer active in the state after Eugene Barrett, which we'll talk about afterwards. So the victims included Vicki Gale Purdy, she was the first victim at age 25. She was a military spouse of Gary Purdy, an Army helicopter pilot. She had left to go clubbing in Waikiki on May 29, 1985, but failed to meet her friends. She was last seen by the taxi driver who drove her to the Shorebird Hotel at 12 a.m., apparently to retrieve her car, which was later found in the hotel parking lot. The next morning, her body was found in the embankment of Kihai Lagoon, 
wearing her yellow jumpsuit. Her hands were bound behind her back, and she had been raped and strangled. Her husband told police he suspected her death to be associated with her job working at a video rental store and also handled pornographic film, um, where two women were stabbed to death one year earlier. You know, that would have made me leave that job personally. (laughs) And then the second victim was Regina Sakamoto, who was 17, of Lehau High School. She had missed her bus from Waipua, um, to school on January 14th, 1986, and was last heard from by her boyfriend at 7.15 a.m. when she called to tell him she would be late. On January 15th, her body was found at Kihai um, Lagoon wearing her blue tank top and white sweatshirt, and her lower body was unclothed. Her hands bound behind her back, and she had been raped and strangled. She was planning on attending Hawaii Pacific University in the fall, and the second case to lead... Uh, this, this second case led police to suspect the same killer as the first because of the same uh, M.O. Right. And also being found in the same location. That's um, usually... It's be a big tell. Yeah, that's pretty on par with most serial killers. And especially at this point, too, uh, there had been multiple serial killers that had been caught and publicly talked about. Right. You know, uh, at least there was a little bit more... Uh, clarity for what to look for with these particular cases. But third victim was uh, Denise Hughes. She was 21. She was a secretary for a phone company who commuted by bus and was active in her church, um, her Christian church. She did not show up to work on January 30th and was found dead in Monalua stream by three young fishermen on February 1st. I worry so much at JT one day because he likes to go out into these desolate, oh. desolate areas like fishing and things like that. Um, on a body. Right. Yeah. I worry that you're, yeah. that's going to happen one day because it's, it's, it's always. It's definitely possible. It's definitely possible. Like if I'm going hunting or I'm going fishing or something like that, I usually go where no one else wants to go. Like I'll put on my snake trousers and just. Yeah. And Santa's right Bust on the 95 corridor, which is a serial killer's dream. It really, well, yeah, I mean, look at Gary Ray Bowles. She, or he would end up. Look at yeah, all of them. Right. Up and down. Ted Bundy. It's um, true. Uh, Highway killers are. Gaskins, Gaskin. Are for uh, real. All of them. Um, but her decomposed body was clothed in a blue dress wrapped in a blue tarp and w- had her hands bound. She had been sexually assaulted and strangled as well. Prompted by a third body, a serial killer task force was established on February 5th. Um, the fourth victim would be Luis uh, Medeiros, who was 25. She lived in Waipahu, uh, but had gone to uh, Kauan, or, yeah, Kauai to meet her extended family because of the death of her mother. Medeiros took a late-night flight back to Oahu on March 26 and told her family she would get home by bus from the airport. She disembarked the plane and disappeared. Her decomposing body was found April 2nd near uh, Waikeli Stream by road workers. She was wearing her blouse, but her lower body was unclothed and her hands, you guessed it, had been bound. Police set up sting operations using police women around Kihai Lagoon in the Honolulu International Airport. Now, the fifth and the last known victim of the Honolulu Strangler was Linda Pesci, who was 36. And according to her roommate, she left home on the morning of April 29th and was expected to be home late that evening due to a pre-scheduled work meeting. 
The next morning, after being told that Pesci had not shown up for work and that her car was parked on the side of the Nimitz H1 viaduct, her roommate reported her missing. A man named Howard Gay told police a psychic told him a body could be located at Sand Island. On May 3rd, he took police to an exact location only to find nothing there. Police then searched the entire island and found Pesci's body. She was nude, her hands bound behind her back. Isn't that just strange? You know, and there have been cases where psychics have assisted police in finding um, bodies, especially with serial killers. There's an Unsolved Mysteries um, episode of like one woman who moved into an apartment and the woman was trying to like help. It really wasn't that unsolved because, you know, they they really got very, very close to finding the killer. But, yeah, it's um, it's interesting because she never had psychic abilities before that until she moved into the house and her daughter started reporting seeing this young woman who allegedly had been killed by this serial killer. But anyways, so it's not uncommon for that, but suspicious yeah, well, nonetheless. And the... Uh... <sighs> One of the MOs that comes along when we speak about serial killers is that desire to have people know your work. Right. And to be present and to to be involved. You know, the, uh, the very fragile mental state of a serial killer, uh, as we know them, you know, um, I always talk about the fact that we only know the serial killers that we profile. Um, there are other killers out there that we don't have a profile for, that we don't that don't fit into our our understanding of serial killers. So the serial killers that we do find and do catch and do follow, they oftentimes do contact the press or they you do. know they 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 ramp up in order to get closer to caught because a part of the whole um, experience for them is the threat of ca- of being caught. Right. You know that's a that's a piece of it. Um, and the notoriety, and of course. And the notoriety of the fame, right. Which, honestly, brings me just to my side tangent of, I don't know why we give these serial killers such cool names. JT and I were talking about this the other night. We're like, the Zodiac Killer? That's such a dope name. I'm like, why aren't we calling them? I, I could use some choice, uh, more per, <laughs> uh, perverse <laughs> names. but The Imbecile Killer. <laughs> not even. Just dumb little boy killing <laughs> dumb little boy dumb little boy there you go <laughs> uh you can insert with We're your imagination of boy. other dumb little boy struck again <laughs> dumb little boy struck again <laughs> yeah uh, so much better because it's like i don't want to be called dumb little boy i'm like well you are we are dumb little boy <laughs> so, stop killing people anyways um so after these incidents happened, a waitress actually stepped forward saying that she possibly had encountered this person. So um, when the police were putting out the profile of the Honolulu Strangler, he uh, was described as Caucasian, middle-aged, clean-cut, receding hairline, black glasses, and polite. Sounds like every serial killer in the 70s and 80s, but... Um, by an assistant manager and waitress at the La um, Mariana Sailing Club, she recounted that he was a regular customer who seemed to be a little too interested in her at the time. She matched his victim type, petite and brunette, and one day she was extremely tired at the end of her shift, and he tried to convince her to let him give her a ride home instead of 
instead a local biker who I would trust more. Trust the the big gruff biker dude because usually they're way nicer than these people. Um, a local biker who the waitress had gotten to know drove her home on the back of his motorcycle. A few days later, as she recounts in a blog post, he was hauled off in cuffs. So she made the right decision. Don't trust the creepy regulars. Creepy regulars. (laughs) Now, when it came to the investigation, the Honolulu Police Department had established a 27-person serial killer task force, and um, they acquired help from the FBI and the Green River Task Force, which, honestly, if I was going to pick a task force, the Green River one was a pretty solid choice. Right. Um. But anyways, the killer's profile was that of an opportunist who attacked women who were vulnerable, such as at bus stops, and not one who stalks his victims. He also likely lives or works in the area of the attacks, Waipahu or Sand Island, and police set up roadblocks at the time of the Pesci murder to question frequent commuters. Witnesses came forward saying that they had seen a light-colored van and a Caucasian or mixed-race man with Pesci's car. Now, why would you steal the car? That's, that's always odd. that's always going to give you away. Um, so when they, uh, following the discovery of Pesci's body, police arrested Howard Gay, the guy who came forward and said the, the psychic, uh, psychic told him. tipped him. Yeah. So Howard Gay uh, was arrested on May 9th as the primary suspect, and the suspect's ex-wife and girlfriend described him as a smooth talker. They also provided a potentially incriminating fetish clue as both were called engaging in bondage activity, allowing him to tie them up and have sex with their hands bound behind their backs. Mm. His girlfriend related that on nights after they had fought, he would leave the house and that these were the same nights the murders had occurred. The suspect lived in Iwa Beach and worked as a mechanic at one of the air freight carriers along Lagoon Drive between 8 p.m. and 3 a.m. The suspect was interrogated, failed a polygraph test, and was eventually released. What? 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 That seems like, I guess they didn't have enough evidence to convict him, but... He failed the polygraph test. His girlfriend said that he didn't have, you know, a alibi for the nights of kind of the, proclivity for the very uh, nature of the, of crimes. the crimes. Exactly. So police followed the suspect, and a twenty-five thousand dollar reward for information was put out by private businesses. Two months after the arrest of the suspect, a woman came forward and claimed she saw Pesci with a man on the night of her murder. She successfully picked the man or the suspect out of a photo lineup as, you guessed it, Howard Gay. Well, there you go. But Howard Gay would die in 2003, which is why this is technically still considered a cold case. It most likely will stay that way. Like they right. they they found the Zodiac killer supposedly, but you know it's he's too been late. Dead. So yeah. it's too late. And so you can't say for sure. You, you know, can't put him on trial. Exactly from the grave. Right. Right. Unless yeah. you're like the uh, the um, ghost from West Virginia who convicted her oh, right. her killer <laughs> from the grave. Oh yeah, that was so, pretty cool. Yeah. Um, Zona, yes. Zona. But yeah, sad. But we knew it was Howard. We all knew it's Howard. It's Howard. I'm gonna I'm gonna call it Howard Gay at that point. He's the Honolulu yeah. Strangler. I reckon. But for our last serial killer would be Eugene Barrett. Eugene Barrett. Yes, he's probably the most notorious out of all of them. Um, So Eugene Walter Barrett 
um, was an American serial killer who murdered three women he was romantically involved with in Honolulu, Hawaii, which I'm sure because there's a lot of um, tours in Honolulu that actually take you by these locations, which I do feel is a little insensitive to the to the murders um, or the victims, if you will. But um, yeah, I'm sure there are haunting type activity because a lot of times when you have really brutal instances right. like Sudden this death especially you know when you're robbing somebody of their potential the uh all, all that energy all that potential life that is just taken away fuels spirits absolutely right and i mean and it doesn't have to be the spirit of these victims no. it very no. well could be you know something that opportunistic came opportunistic spirits exactly yeah. opportunistic spirits and also a lot of times you'll find um residual hauntings sure. with types of cases like this so i'd be interested to hear from people who live in these houses or l- right. live near these locations right. the spike of emotional distress can definitely uh, soak into the architecture. Exactly. So, especially with Eugene Barrett's cases, because his typically happened at apartment complexes. Um, so, um, he was basically um, the first confirmed uh, serial killer active in the state of Hawaii. And it, basically, they had considered him as possible for the Honolulu Strangler and the Kauai serial killer, but neither of those really fit his MOs, as you'll see later on. But Eugene Walter Barrett was born on June 30th, 1931 in Oakland, California. He was the older of two sons, born to Howard and Emily Barrett. And little is known about his childhood other than the fact that he studied at the Washington Intermediate School in Honolulu, Hawaii, until he dropped out in the ninth grade. So he's not very educated as well. Um, He later joined the Army and fought in the Korean War, but was dishonorably discharged in 1955 due to his excessive drinking. So on to his... uh, Slight Jeffrey Dahmer. Yep. Very much so. He was very uh, disorganized, though, unlike Jeffrey Dahmer. Yeah. So, um, Jeffrey... Yeah, there's, a, there's a, a romantic notion that serial killers are, like, very smart and very... But the truth is, most of them are dumb. It's true. <laughs> most of them don't have full educations. So most of them don't... Yeah. Uh, you know, they're acting on an impulse, and that impulse uh, is something that they can't reason out of, and that, that is definitely a sign of, of a lower intellect. And so we we have to stop with the Hannibal Lecters. We have to stop telling stories about, oh, he's so smart and suave. Right. And, oh, he's a serial killer because, you know, he views human life at such a low cost because he's so superior. Stop that. That's, that's not the case. Uh, you know, most serial killers are fundamentally uh, stunted in, de- in development. Mm-hmm. And they are, they are operating on, you know, a very basic level of need and want and desire and then they have a very childish uh, outlook on yeah. on how the world works, and you know things like television fame, media fame. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, being pursued makes you important. You know, uh, these are the thoughts of a twelve-year-old. You know, and and so it 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 it's an interesting anomaly that somewhere along the way we've we've turned serial killers, you know, story-wise into these chess players you know and detectives are playing chess with these you know uh high-end serial killers but no they're, they're just not right you know ed gein was not a smart oh man. well yeah no he's you know and he's like 
template serial killer in a lot of ways because we kept telling his story right. over and over in different mediums in different ways and basing different characters off yeah. of him. I mean, so fun fact, um, if you go to the Greyface Museum, you can actually hear my voice uh, in the Ed Gein exhibit. Um, <laughs> so when we were reading the transcripts, it's almost unintelligible when you're trying to understand what he's saying because he doesn't make cohesive sentences. Very, uh, very often he doesn't make sense. Um, so go check that out if you're interested, at least in Ed Gein. Um, but yeah, most of them, you're right, are not very intelligent. I mean, you do get a few like you super get, geniuses, right. but you'll, you'll, you'll get them. But uh, but even then, you're dealing with an inability to to control those base impulses. Right. Yeah. So um, at some point after his discharge, he permanently moved to Honolulu, where he began a romantic relationship with a woman named Annie E. Phillips, a divorced mother of five children. Barrett, a house painter by profession, was unemployed and drank excessively, eventually leading to Phillips severing ties with him in 1959. Good for you, Annie. Unable to handle her rejection, the enraged Barrett decided that he would kill his ex-girlfriend. Kind of in that snapped um, mm. sort of mindset. Sure. Uh, he arrived, or he armed himself with a gun, got on a bus to her apartment complex in Mayor Wright Holmes, and forced his way inside. Barrett then walked across the living room where two of Phillips's children were watching TV, and went into the bedroom where he found her tending to her youngest child. Now, this is a very, very gruesome end, so if you don't want to hear that, I would skip on forward. Um... Before she had time to react, he pulled out his gun and shot her multiple times, killing her on the spot with her child in her arms. The ensuing racket alerted the neighbors who managed to hold down and beat him until police forces could arrive. At his subsequent trial, Barrett claimed that he could not recall the shooting as he was drunk at the time. Not good enough. Mm -mm. Anyways, this was contradicted by the witnesses who claimed that he said that she deserved it. Due to the overwhelming evidence against him, Barrett was found guilty, convicted, and sentenced to life imprisonment. This was later reduced to a 15 to 50 year imprisonment. And in 1967, he was um, paroled after then Governor John A. Burns commuted his minimum imprisonment term to eight years for unknown reasons. This happens with veterans, though. Um, That's fair. You see this sometimes where they'll get pardoned, even though they committed heinous acts and things like that. Um, it's the same reason with the Gribble House murders, why um, J.C. Hunter right. didn't get convicted, even though it was very clear that he committed the murders because he was a veteran of the confederacy army the governor of georgia said and eh, just pardon him instead right. of executing him He's a good old boy yeah exactly there's a lot of that especially this being you know the 60s and things like that that mindset was very prevalent but barrett then returned to honolulu where he married roberta ulani uh, avero in february 1971 their marriage was short-lived as she filed, she filed for divorce in November 1972, citing her husband's excessive drinking as a primary factor for this action. Wow. A month later, on December 27th, he went to the Hawaii hotel where his ex-wife was staying at the time and stabbed her multiple times with a kitchen <sighs> knife. Basically, I guess that mindset of, like, if I can't have you, nobody, nobody can will. have yeah, you. Yeah, absolutely. 
But after his arrest, he waived his right to trial and pled guilty to a reduced charge of manslaughter. He was sentenced to 10 years imprisonment, was paroled in 1976, and his parole requirements were dismissed in 1982. Why do we keep letting this what? guy off? What? What? <laughs> it's the second person he brutally murdered. And, they, and he's like, yeah, I'm guilty. Exactly. Okay, 10 years. 10 years for taking somebody's entire life? Right. I'm so and, confused. And getting released early. And then getting so, released early. Again. Again. So Guess what? He's going to kill again. And that Spoiler. he Spoiler. Right. <laughs> and for the remainder of the 1980s, Barrett resided in an apartment complex on Kinau, uh, Kinau um, Street in relative peace, but continued to drink and exhibit unstable emotional behavior. What? I know, right? Shocker. But across from his apartment lived neighbor, 41-year-old um, Donashia Roxanne Kastner, who had a checkered history of both substance and sexual abuse. Despite this, she was allowed to look after her seven-year-old son, Ethan, whom she often took kayaking. While there was no confirmed intimate relationship between the pair, Barrett privately accused Kastner of mocking him by dating other men and supposedly indecently exposing herself in front of him. That sounds very much so like um, an obsession case, like because women clearly don't want him. Right. And so now Although he, he's delusional. He got. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's like, this is insane. Yeah. I mean, this is, uh, he, he, he doesn't, he's gotten to the point where he doesn't need the relationship part. Right. He just skips right to the rejection part. Exactly. You know, uh, he's just speeding up the process because right now, mm. probably the, the, the most rewarding part of the relationship to him is after it's over and he gets to kill them. Exactly. Um, ugh, blah. I know. Blah is right. But, um, friends and acquaintances even claimed that he would sometimes call them on the phone hysterically claiming that he was afraid he was going to harm her. After one such bout, he, he voluntarily asked to be admitted for psychiatric treatment at the Queens Medical Center, where he remained until early August 1995. By the time of his release, Kastner had moved into a neighboring apartment across the street, which had angered Barrett, who believed that she would move away from the neighborhood altogether. Ab again, obsession case. That's so terrifying. On August 11th, 1995, just a few days after his release, Barrett spent most of the day drinking beer with his brother and a friend. After he went to get more at the local store, he saw Kastner entering her apartment and on a whim, he went back into his apartment, got a 25 semi-automatic pistol, and went across the street, getting right by her son, um, who was playing in front of the building. Barrett then went inside Kastner's room, and when she turned to face him, he shot her twice in the head and then left the room. He was seen leaving by Kastner's son, who immediately called his father, whom in turn called the authorities. Kastner was driven to Queens Medical Center, by, but succumbed to her injuries later that same day. So when it came to the trial, police examined the crime scene, located the supposed murder weapon, which had been um, reported as stolen back in 1989. So he's also stealing weapons. So that's good. Um, dumped near the um, apartment complex. So he just yeeted that. <laughs> However, there was no sign of Barrett for whom an arrest warrant was issued. The following day, Barrett entered the Columbia Inn and pleaded that the manager call the police so he could surrender peacefully. 
The man complied with his request, and shortly afterwards, Barrett was arrested and lodged in a detention facility without incident. He was held on $120,000 bail and charged with murder, theft, and unlawful possession of a firearm, to which he pled not guilty. Barrett's third murder... Do you think they fired his parole officer? Right? They should have. <laughs> because that guy dropped the ball. Severely. Severely. Holy heck. Barrett's third murder trial sparked controversy, leading the chief of the Hawaii Paroling Authority, Claudio Suyat, to release a statement claiming a repeat offender t- with the accused man's record would never be paroled with contemporary laws. At the preliminary hearings, Kastner's son, Ethan, was called in to testify against Barrett, making him one of the youngest witnesses to take the stand in the state's history. Oh, God. The boy claimed that he had seen Gene, as he called him, leave the room mere minutes after he found his mother's body, which was backed up one of the uh, backed up one of the Castner's neighbors by one of the neighbors Castner's neighbors, Enrique Crisotomo, who claimed that he had heard the boy crying after two or three gunshots had been fired into the neighboring apartment. Oof. In the meantime, Barrett announced through his attorney that he wished to remain incarcerated until he could deal with his problem, which they should have done after the first one. This claim was partially granted when the judge revoked his bail, leading to him being imprisoned until his trial would take place. At the trial itself, Barrett's attorney reiterated that his client's actions were the result of Castor's perceived mistreatment of him. Mm which eventually led to him snapping and killing her in a fit of rage. That's just wrong. Anyways, Barrett uh, himself claimed that this was the cause as he said that he wanted to kill that bitch for constantly choosing all the other guys over him. This did not succeed in swaying the jury. <laughs> what? Shocker. Um, <laughs> he was found guilty in, on all counts, resulting in an automatic life sentence, and the presiding justice was also imposed a requirement to serve at least 40 years before he could be eligible for parole. We should no. never make him no. eligible no, for no, parole. No, no parole. No parole. And so um, that does make it technically a de facto life term without parole because he would have died before that point. Um, now, he did... After his sentencing, Bar- uh, Barrett was transferred to an out-of-state facility in Oklahoma where he spent the majority of his prison sentence, and he was occasionally contacted by his son's wife who sent him photos of uh, his grandsons as his son resented him too much to do it himself. Well, sure. I'm sure. So in 2003, Barrett was returned to Hawaii and large in the Halawa uh, Correctional Facility but fell ill and was transferred to a hospital in uh, Waimalu, where he died from an undisclosed illness. So he did technically die in prison. But so oh, starting your day off really nicely, Chris. I no, mean, with some thank you with some heavy, heavy murder. <laughs> None of heavy, that. heavy murder. Yes. Um, so, again, most of the time when we're talking about true crime, a lot of it, we are um, trying to be as respectful as possible because it is pretty gruesome. But it is fascinating that so many um, crimes like this could happen on such a small space. Seriously. You know? Yeah, yeah. That's what I was wondering. And in, in the, in, uh, the Morgan's Corner, too. Yeah, I, which yeah. is going to um, – I don't know if this yeah. is airing before that. But, um, yes, so you see – it's fascinating just how much mayhem has happened in mm-hmm. Hawaii. Um, 
to kind of wrap it up though, JT and I actually were talking about this when we were first like researching topics and we're like, Hawaii is actually kind of the perfect place if you're going to become a serial killer because you're so isolated and it's such a, a vacation destination that I'm sure there have been multiple. Well, it, it raises the question because there has to be serial killers who do not kill anywhere near where they live. Right. And so uh, imagine destination killer. A destination killer like plans his, his holidays or his vacations around isolated places right. where he can go have a vacation and on that vacation kill someone. And then leave. And then leave. And there, you know, the ability to do the MO and, and notoriously uh, law enforcement does not work well with other law enforcement. Like they do not share information all that well. They are very covetous of the get of, uh, you know, and so oftentimes the communication, you know, um, really you, you see that time and time again that, that um, I want to say the hillside strangler was able to, mm-hmm. to go up and down the coast, but the, the individual police departments didn't share information with each other because they were chasing it and saying, this is our caller. And it's like, but we have a case down here that's very similar. It's like, it's our caller. Right. You, know, you don't get any of this information. Uh, and so I think that's why the FBI became like a serial killer unit was the idea that it's bigger than the local law enforcement. Yeah, it, it can expand past, you know, the jurisdictions and w- when people are having jurisdiction issues. But, uh, but you, you know, you, you kill somebody in Hawaii and then you go to, you know, Orlando and kill somebody, the, that information may not comply. Exactly. And, and then there's the whole MO thing, you know, uh, a joy killer doesn't have an MO. It's not looking for a specific type of person. Isn't looking for, isn't using the same method every time. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a tricky world because serial killers, the, the notion that we have of them is still very modern. We still are, are, are in, uh, you know, I guess we're, we're now in, in, in sort of the adolescence of the idea, but it really wasn't until the seventies mm-hmm. that we were really talking about it. And it wasn't until the eighties that it became like this, passion right. of the of, of society um, because we knew killers that killed multiple people we just didn't have that you know uh, like when Jack the Ripper was was out there nobody was like well that's a serial killer you know it was, like, it was it oh. was it was in retrospect that we we came up with this idea that that these things can be trace tracked by mode uh, and operandi modus operandi that's true So thank you guys so much for listening to today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Maybe go watch a Disney movie after this to uh, lighten up your mood. Shower Um, your brain. Yeah, shower your brain with good cartoons. But yes, um, thank you guys again. My name is Madison Timmons. I'm Chris Susie. And stay spooky, y'all.